This is the way it usually works. My son <laughs> terrifies me. <laughs> Most of the day, he spends climbing up to things that are then stand in absolute trepidation, like all of you going, oh my God. <laughs> and then I walk over to him and I hold out my hands, and he knows that I'm about to say, I'll catch you. And without missing a beat, he lets go. <laughs> and lands. And every time I think to myself, am I really a helicopter dad? You know, am I so afraid of those edges that he walks out to, those places, those those curiosities that lead him to his limits as he explores. And so I will come back to this, but I want to explore more deeply tonight the tension between taking a risk and not. Maureen O'Hara, who was the former president of the Saybrook Institute, tells how her mentor changed her life with a simple, gentle, and clear instruction. She was studying biology at the University of Leeds with a woman named Irene Manton. Now, Irene Manton was the first female to ever use an electron microscope. And after four days of trying to see a cell, Maureen O'Hara, frustrated, cursed the bloody thing. And Dr. Manton put her hand on Maureen's shoulder and offered from a place of practiced wonder, oh, Maureen, you won't see it if you hate it. You'll only see it if you love it. Then it will come to you. Let it come to you. Such a gentle and profound lesson. It isn't enough to recognize the larger order. Recognition is one thing, but loving that larger order is another thing entirely. We don't just look at it, but we have to appreciate it. Move toward it with awe. And then that awe emits its own gravity which pulls everything into view. It is a gravity that confirms our place in the universe. That is why sincerity, curiosity, and gratitude are such strong and compelling tools of the heart, which when we inhabit them, they bring us back into the web of life, where we can feel how everything is connected. This Maureen O'Hara goes on to speak of how this small moment affected how she views risk. She writes, in a world where risk is always considered in terms of transgressions, we often manage what we try to do. 
so as not to violate others or to be judged or get in trouble. But by loving our way into life, she writes, being fully alive requires us to consider what will be missed if we don't try, if we don't take a risk. So we have an equal, if not greater, need to enhance risk so that we don't slip into a lifeless life, watching as it passes us by. These notions about love and risk, forces that join us in the web of life, have huge implications for how we understand education. Sincerity, curiosity, and gratitude set the larger order of things straight and pushes them in motion. This week's reading, this week's reading, this week's reading from the Torah is itself a plan or a conversation about risk whose lesson is clearly risk aversion. Nadav and Avihu in this week's reading, the sons of Aaron, when everything was done, the Mishkan, the tabernacle that had been so long in construction, like a New York City building, it was going on and on and on. Four of the parshiot at the end of the book of Exodus, two parshiot from the beginning of the book of Leviticus, and finally we arrive at the third of the portions of the third book of the book of Leviticus, of the Torah, and it's done. A seven-day celebration, a consecration, and it was on the eighth day. Aaron and his sons, they do everything that needs to be taken to happen to make it operational. They walk into the, Aaron walks into the tabernacle and, and comes out. He exits in peace and blesses the people. You couldn't imagine a, a higher moment. It parallels Mount Sinai, the theophany at Mount Sinai. Here we are, Vayhi, Bayomashmini. It was on the eighth day. And then chapter 10 of the book of Leviticus. Nadav and Avihu, these two characters, they're main characters in this terrible story. They bring what's called a foreign fire, an Eish Zara. And they're killed by God. This rupture, this tear in the fabric of our story, clearly didn't bother the biblical authors. Their morality, their ethics was in place. For them to enter into the consecrated area was to incur the punishment of death. But for the rabbis who lived generations after the biblical authors, this story is horrific. How could these two innocent young men with best of intentions who entered into the consecrated space be taken by God and all sorts of answers are offered, blaming them. I've seen this in my work as a pastor. I've seen this kind of blaming the victim mentality. I've seen this kind of spin on terrible things. More often than not, I see it in the inability that people have to trust that the shoe will not drop again. Everything was great. And then the other shoe dropped, just when things were looking good. Life was looking rosy. I had turned a corner. 
Nadav and Avio. There are, thankfully, voices within the tradition who don't blame these two, who don't incur guilt and try to seek what it is that they did wrong that would deserve what took place, but rather see them as champions, that their yearning, their ecstasy was what brought them to that place. And within that school, within that school where actually nothing, nothing essentially wrong took place, I want to discuss tonight a part of the story that I always think about but never actually get to. As soon as Aaron's children are killed, the Torah goes out of its way to tell us Aaron's reaction. Vayidom Aaron. Aaron is silent. He doesn't say a word. And that silence is so pregnant. Is he thinking what we just thought? How could this happen? When things are going great, these two boys of mine, was he thinking, God is just? What is Aaron's silence? And most of the commentators say his silence is acquiescence. His silence is a silence of presence, of pure presence. He believed, he had faith. But here's the problem. The part that I don't always talk about or have never talked about but I always think about comes at the end of the story. At the end of the story, after all of this tragedy, Moshe inquires, Moses inquires of his brother Aaron and of his children what they did with a particular offering that they had sacrificed before Nadav and Avihu had been killed. He wanted to know if they actually had, had eaten it, because eating it was a part of the ceremony. But Moshe inquired, Darosh Darash, Midrash, he inquired and found out that it had been consumed on the, on the fire, on the Mizbeach, on the altar. So Moshe said, wait a second. You didn't follow protocol, Aaron. You were supposed to have eaten that sacrifice right here at the end of chapter 10. Moses chastises his brother and his two living sons and says, you did not Obey the rules. You should have eaten that sacrifice. Everybody get that part of the story? I'm not sure. I'm seeing some nods. I'm not sure. You can look it up at the end of the book of chapter 10. Essentially, Moses comes with a list of what he didn't do in the interim mourning period. Before your sons were taken, Moses says, you should have fulfilled your duties. The sanctity of the sanctuary depends upon it. And Moses gets angry with Aaron, and he listened to Aaron's response. Vaidaber Aaron el Moshe, and Aaron, the older brother, speaks to his younger brother and says, Hein hayom hikrivu eschatasam, des olosam lifnei Adonai, vatikrena osi ka'ele, v'achalti chatas hayom. He says to him, Indeed, we sacrificed and did exactly what we were supposed to do. But had I eaten that sacrifice in celebration after what had actually happened to me, would that have been good in God's eyes? And Moses heard, and it agreed with him. So what happens, everybody? 
We have two people who take a risk, and in the traditional reading of the Torah, their risk is rewarded how? With being taken. And then Aaron is silent, seemingly in acquiescence, seemingly in submission to the divine decree. And then at the end of the story, Moses chastises Aaron and says, you didn't obey the rules. You didn't follow the protocol. And Aaron says, would that have made God happy had I followed the protocols? So I broke the rules. The end of the of the story of the two children of Aaron who broke the rules was that their father breaks the rules too and has a logical complaint, an emotional complaint. Aaron, in my reading, is not risk-averse. And he knows that his sons needed to take a risk they needed to express themselves. They needed to be who they were. And he realizes from his own silence as Martin Luther King, who this week we commemorated an anniversary of his famous speech at Riverside Church, who said that silence is betrayal. Aaron is standing there in silence before the ark of God, and all he can think is, what are my lists? What are my rules? What do I have to do? But that can't be it. There's a greater ethic, there's a greater call, and I know it in my heart, says Aaron. I know that this can't be what God wants. So Aaron takes a risk. And the end of the paradigmatic, emblematic story of the Bible about taking a risk is that Aaron takes a risk not only does he take a risk, but he is rewarded. With this insight, I'd like to, it helped me answer another question. In this week's reading, the rabbis locate a textual, I guess, textually interesting fact. The rabbis say that there are two places in this week's reading that are the center points of the Torah. The words, and he inquired, Darosh, Darash, Moshe, when Moshe made an inquiry to find out what had actually happened in the protocol, and the word Gachon, which means belly, which is the middle letter, the Vav in Gachon, the belly of animals that can't be eaten, I'm sorry, animals that, that squirm on the ground, who, who, who work on the ground, those animals can't be eaten. And the vav, the letter of gachon, belly, is the middle letter of the whole Torah, says the rabbis. And so right here in the middle of the Torah, we have the fulcrum on which the whole Torah spins, turns. And I think the answer to why the center of the Torah is the two words, darosh, darash, and he inquired, and also the letter vav of gachon, those two points are the fulcrums, one in words and one in letters, is to remind us, one, that it is the mysteries, the edges of our life that we go towards that release us into the greater freedom. That to keep inquiring, to be like those two girls in Levertov's poem who scurry and scatter for the lines of the poem and its meaning, they never stop. Aaron was that. 
trying to discern what God's will was, trying to discern what his own authentic voice could be. And then this vav in the middle of the word belly reminds us of that other belly, that snake, that once upon a long time ago was cursed that he, the snake, would crawl on the ground. And that snake, that memory of the snake, is to remind us of the first sin in the Torah, which was eating the wrong thing. But as if to tell us, you will fall. You will fall, Tal. You're going to fall. If you go to heights, it's inevitable that you will fall. We will all fall. And the measure of each and every one of us is not whether we fall, but how we get up, how we stand straight like that vav in the middle of the belly, that straight spine that brings us up. That's the lesson of this week's reading. Not that risk is dangerous, but that risk is necessary and inevitable. And only the dead stop risking. Aaron's protest, his subtle, ironic, and eloquent question, would this too be good in God's eyes? Is our own courage to go beyond our borders, our boundaries, to elevate ourselves to a conversation that we are afraid to have, to take a class that we wish we could take, to have an experience that we mock cynically, though inside we know that it will make us feel alive. And those are banal examples that are real. And what about more important examples, like synagogues that won't take a chance on new kinds of liturgy or new kinds of music? Let's be more ethically and morally problematic. What about whole denominational streams in various religious communities, Jewish, Christian, where the risk to say the truth about child abuse and sexual abuse and domestic abuse keeps all of them from even trying to ascend to the place where they can see the truth? God forbid they might fall. Everyone protecting themselves. My friend Amichai Laulavi last year was writing a blog for every day of the Svirah, of the counting of the Omer, all the way up to 50, the 50 days between Passover and Shavuot. And he wrote this last year on this day. Listen to this. Spirals happen when a circle breaks its perfectly complete orbit and deviates ever so slightly a fraction of a movement to create a curve, a tiny turn that will form eventually a spiral, and so on and so on again. Is this the secret, he writes, of a seashell, the origin of the movement of the sea itself? A circle has to break for the spiral to happen. A circle has to break for the spiral to happen. We don't grow unless we risk the darkness that is on the other side of that circle. We keep going around until finally one day we say, oh, Scared, here we go, here we go.
Oh, and here it is again. The spiral of our own growth is measured by our risk management system. So ask yourself, where in your life are you being safe? Where in your life are you so afraid that no one will be there to catch you, that you've forgotten to dream of that ladder that reaches to heaven, of that voice that is your own unique voice? And I pray that that the same God that inspires me to stand underneath my son, promising him that I will be there once he steps out. May that spirit, that source of life, nudge you to the edge and catch you as you fall. Please rise.